Welcome to the Pirates Overboard Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Ostwick. This is Jonathan Luters with the Pirates Overboard Podcast. Usually, the next voice you hear is my co-host, Justin Ostwick, but today, that is not the case. We have booted him off the ship, and we're still searching for him at sea. Today is a solo episode, and I'm the captain today. I'm lucky enough to have baseball alumni, John Morris, on with me today, our very first alumni on the Pirates Overboard Podcast. So we're excited to dive into it today. We'll try to find Justin. We'll find some information, some insights, and some advice from John Morris. Without further ado, John Morris has many accolades from his time at Seton Hall, including New Jersey Play of the Year, first-team All-American, as well as being named academic All-American during his three years playing here while at the Hall. Morris held numerous baseball records at Seton Hall, from career triples, batting average, third in home runs, among many other notable stats. In 1982, his final season in a Seton Hall uniform, Morris put together arguably the finest season as a Pirate has ever had at the plate, batting 431 with 85 hits, 19 home runs, 80 RBIs, and 79 runs scored, as well as 54 walks in just 54 games. During the summer of 1981, while playing at Seton Hall, he had the opportunity to play in the prestigious Cape Cod League in Massachusetts, playing for the Wareham Gateman. Not only did he get the opportunity to play there, he was named the league's MVP at the season's conclusion. Thanks to Morris' play at Seton Hall and also at the Cape, he was drafted 10th overall by the Royals in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft, one of four guys to ever be drafted in the top 10 out of Seton Hall. He enjoyed a seven-year big league career playing for the St. Louis Cardinals, Philadelphia Phillies, and Los Angeles Angels, including a World Series appearance for the Cardinals in 1987. After his playing career, he spent time in professional baseball scout and a coach and now serves as a special assistant to the general manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Outside of baseball, he serves as an advisory council member for St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, which aids families who have children with cancer as well as leadership development. In all, John Moore has been inducted into three separate Hall of Fames, the Seton Hall Athletics Hall of Fame in 1989, the Cape Cod League Hall of Fame in 2007, and the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame most recently in 2020. So without question, it's an absolute honor to have John Morris on this evening. So without further ado, John Morris. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. It's a oh. pleasure to be back on campus today. I had to walk around the campus to familiarize myself with some of the old stomping grounds. Yeah, it's probably a little bit different now than it was when you were here. What was the most notable thing that you saw that was, that was different in your old tour that you got from Coach Giuseppe? Well, there wasn't a Starbucks 40 years ago. <laughs> And there wasn't a Dunkin' Donuts or a Jersey Mike's, so that was quite a shock in itself. But then to be able to uh, to see Old Boland Hall, which is where I lived as a freshman, it was it was uh, very interesting to say the least. I really appreciated G- uh, Coach Giuseppe's tour, five minute tour. Yeah, no, campus is is beautiful now, and especially the past couple of years, the changes to the U Center, which obviously had a Starbucks now, and. This all all the changes across campus with different buildings. I know Bowen had a little bit of an addition. Um, so, yeah, a lot of really good changes over the past couple of years. And really glad you got to came, came to campus today. Uh, you came back and spoke with the baseball team just recently. You spoke for about probably th- a little more than three hours to, to four different groups. And this wasn't re- originally planned in the podcast, but I think this would be really beneficial to all the student-athletes and to everyone listening. You spoke to the baseball team in four different groups. The first group was the freshmen. Second group was to the returners and the sophomores and juniors. And the third group was transfers that are coming in here for the first time. And the last group was more the leaders, the grad students and the seniors. 
And I think the conversations that you had with the seniors and grad students was could apply to all sports, not just the baseball and the experiences that you had. Would you mind giving like a summary of each group from the freshmen to all the other groups you had, just so the other student athletes there can, can learn from what the conversations you had with the guys on the baseball team had today? Sure, Jonathan. Well, thanks for having me, first no, of, of course, all. And of course. I really enjoyed my time here today. I've, I've known Coach Shepard for many decades, having mm. played for um, Rob Shepard's dad, Mike Shepard, in the early 1980s. And uh, I have a, a very strong affinity to Seton Hall University. I'm still emotionally very attached to the, the university and appreciative of my 15-year bachelor <laughs> degree. We'll get into that one a little bit. Yep. Um, but I always enjoy coming back. I have not been back on campus since before the pandemic, so I've been feeling a sense of uh, disconnect to mm. the, the program and the school for some time now. So I'm, I'm glad that when I approached Coach Shepard earlier this fall about coming back, he was open to me coming back. And, and I appreciate you having the foresight to create an a itinerary and a program that would be beneficial for different groups on the team. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And the group, what's up with the freshmen? Um, you spoke to, I think it was 13 freshmen. I could be wrong on the, on the number exactly there. What was their, what was the main overall kind of message that you gave to them based on your experience that you had a freshman? And what was the advice that you gave to them? And maybe that could apply to any other student athlete as well. Sure. So I guess it it's, should be no different than being a soccer player or right. a volleyball player or a field hockey player than, you know, freshman year for a college student is an extremely difficult transition going from high school to college. And on a, whether it's on the field or in the classroom, I, the phrase I use, I use a lot is the speed of the game increases tremendously when we change from high school environment to college environment. Mm. You know, if you just look at the field on the playing field, that the players are bigger, they're stronger, they're faster, they're quicker, their instincts are better. And, you know, now I'm 19 years old and I'm playing against 23-year-olds who have a lot more game experience and they're just physically more mature than I am as, as if I'm a freshman. Right. So that's a big challenge in itself on the field. And then another big challenge for a freshman is, is how the speed of the game changes in the classroom. In high school, I can get by in, in certain environments to where – I'm okay, but then I realize when I come to college, the standards are, are raised, and there's a lot more expected of me as a student. Mm -hmm. So when I combine the speed of the game that's required adjusting from high school to college in the classroom and on the field, that in itself is, is a tremendous challenge for, for many, many freshmen. Yeah, and especially traveling, some freshmen not being away from being away from home for the first time, like some freshmen maybe being – from me from Massachusetts, from California, across state, like it's your first time on your own and to make adjustments and to learn, you're kind of out of your shell really for the first time in your life because you always lived at home other than, other than that time. And as a freshman, trying to also like develop relations with your teammates, trying to figure out, okay, what is a coach like in me? Um, am I doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing? There's a lot of other factors to go into there. Was there a thing for you as a freshman that you kind of like latched on to was like okay like I'm going to latch on to certain guys because they're the way I want to go was there a guy that you had when you were a freshman that was like okay I want to follow him <clears throat> well when I was a, a very young teenager in middle school and high school my older brother my oldest brother hmm. 
ran track here. Uh, Rich Morris ran track for the university in the late 1960s. So I had come on the campus quite a bit and was well aware of the national reputation of the baseball program at the time. They were going to Omaha in the College World Series on right. a regular basis, and if they weren't doing that, they were making deep runs into the national, into the regionals. So I grew up on stories of Rick Cerrone and, and hearing about the baseball program. So sure. I was very intrigued by this opportunity or this program at an early age, and I was I liked the idea of hmm, Seton Hall's a, a powerhouse in the Northeast. That's not too far from where I live now here in, in Nassau County, Long Island. And it has an excellent academic reputation at the same time. So those were the things that I was paying attention to as a, as a young teenager as I was getting ready to decide where I wanted to go to school. Got it. Awesome. And then mo- moving forward from the, the freshman, you also talked to the, the sophomores and juniors. What was your advice to them in the current position they're at right now? Well, I applauded them for getting through their freshman year because I, I always think that the freshman year is the toughest academic experience that any student will ever experience in getting used to the uh, the speed of the game, on the field, in the classroom, learning how to balance your checkbook, pay your bills for the first time, do laundry on your own without the help of mom and dad. You know, learning how to become independent as a freshman is a game in itself. Now that I've gone to become a sophomore and a junior, when I step back on campus, I have this sense of strength and confidence that you know I'm right. no longer a freshman, and right. and I've I've learned, and I feel like I belong here, right. and and that many times in and of itself is where I refer to that's where the magic happens hmm. as a student, where I really begin to grow physically, mentally, and emotionally as a student athlete, and. That's what happened to me. I mean, I came back my sophomore year here, and I had gone from a boy to a man in a short period of time, and I learned how to train, right. and I knew how to take care of myself and put myself in an environment that helped me grow. And part of that was moving off campus. Sure. At, at that time, everybody lived in Boland Hall, and I just didn't have a good experience there as a freshman. And in coming back, I just decided that, you know, if I'm going to be happy, I'm going to do it in an off-campus apartment. Yeah. And I did, and, and it was really one of the best decisions I ever made for myself as a sophomore. And I did that as a sophomore and a junior. And I had an incredible experience here in those two years before I signed professionally. Do you think that living off-campus kind of was a good like, reset? You're not always, like, in it? Like, if you're on campus, like, in bowling, living with baseball guys, like, or, or whatever sport you're on, you felt like it was hard to kind of like detach, like if you're off campus, like I, I can like reset now, like days yeah. over, and then come yeah. back, I hit it hard the next day. You think that was a factor? It was, campus? it was. Yeah. So, because mentally, I considered myself fairly introverted at the time. I wasn't somebody that needed to go to Thursday night parties. Yeah, I wasn't very social. I knew what I wanted when I was here. I wanted to go to school and get good grades and play baseball and get drafted. Right, and I just felt like you know these three o'clock. Uh, alarms going off in the morning are not working for me. I'm not getting much sleep here. Yeah, and I didn't. I didn't really care for Monday night keg parties at the end of the hallway. <laughs> uh, not to make any of those people wrong, but that just didn't work for me. Yeah, it wasn't for you. So I decided that I have to create some stronger boundaries, and for me, that was moving off campus, so that when I did get off campus, I was in an environment that 
allowed me to grow and, and be happy. So when I came back on campus, I could enjoy the classwork and the baseball environment. Right. So it kind of just made – it was good to, like, to separate a little bit. Like you had your, your, your priorities set. And you, it wasn't depending on anyone else. Like anyone else in Bowen that had different priorities set, like they weren't impeding on yours, and you had your separate kind of things and off campus where you could get your sleep, you could eat, do whatever you need to do to reset, and then hit hard the next day. So that was important for you. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I must have looked silly at certain days of the year walking down South Orange Avenue in my baseball uniform <laughs> on my way from my apartment to uh, to the the baseball field we didn't have locker rooms back then oh wow and we had to get dressed you know in our dorm room or our in our apartment and walk to practice so that was just the way it was uh the facilities have improved quite a bit since then and it makes me very happy for the current student athletes where did you live on south orange ave by chance is it still around you have any idea yeah montrose street uh down center avenue down a few blocks towards 280 and hang a left i got a little bit of walk down down the campus yeah (laughs) but it was beautiful i loved it Uh, it was a gorgeous neighborhood it was like three short blocks to take a couple back streets and cut through the the front the front uh entrance there were different entrances at the time okay than there are now got it um and it was just great and i i wouldn't trade it for anything my experience here was was just perfect for me Mm. and uh it was 15 years for me to get my degree I left after my junior year, and then it took me 12 years to complete my last year. And I'm I'm just so grateful that it turned out the way it did. I, I couldn't have asked for anything else. Yeah, and you you were talking about with one of our uh, one of our players, upperclassmen, that it's all about how you view like kind of your experience, where you might view it negatively, but then you at the same time just said, well, you just learned this, 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 and this. So even though it may have been like a struggling time for you, you learned from it, it became a better person and better player because of it so your freshman year you said you struggled you had a lot of struggles but then what did you learn from those struggles in your freshman year that made you better off your sophomore and junior year besides living off campus and doing what you need to do well i i realized quickly when i got here that the players are bigger stronger and faster than me than they were in high school Mm -hmm. and if i'm going to compete at a higher level i need to get bigger stronger and faster right so my sophomore year when I came back after I had a really difficult conversation with the head coach about not wanting to pitch anymore, sure. I was de- going to devote myself to playing the outfield full-time. I'm like, I got to hit the weight room. Yeah. So back then, uh, Nautilus was the flavor of the day in terms of weight training. So, and the facility was downtown in South Orange. So I'd run downtown and do Nautilus training every day. Um, upper body one day, lower body, you know, four days a week. And then I had this amazing hitting coach named Fred Hopke taught me how to hit. And as I was getting bigger, stronger, and faster, I was learning how to hit. And everything started to come together in the fall of my sophomore year. And the the playing environment was much different back then, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, we played 45 games in the fall. I remember you telling me this, yeah. It's amazing. So my sophomore year, I played 45 games in the fall, and then I played 45 in the spring, and then I played another 40 in the summer, and then another 45 the fall of my junior year, and another 55 my senior year, um, my junior year in the spring. So by the time I signed professionally, I had played over 200 college games in a two-year period. And it did an amazing job of preparing me for professional baseball. Sure. So the idea that you know Northeastern schools don't 
play a lot of games yeah. is a misnomer and it's a myth. <laughs> There's plenty of opportunities to play, uh, but the rules of the game have changed quite a bit in terms sure. of what yeah. you can do in the fall. But, you know, with global warming, you know, you, at a new field, you guys are able to, it looks like you guys can get outside in January and February, which is nice. Oh, yeah, we're very lucky. The Mike Shepard Senior Stadium going under some renovations and new turf, the new stadium and everything like that. And obviously having a, a pretty mild fall game to be outside for the majority of the whole fall, even like towards like the last few days of the of the fall season. But we definitely did not play 40 or 45 fall games. We definitely inter-squad a good amount. But uh, 40, 45 games is a is a lot for the fall. And on top of that, play a full season in the spring. So it just mean, it seems like the more games, more reps you get, like just keeping it super simple, do the fundamentals that you just told us in the – in the meeting, and if you just do it over and over again, that's like what makes consistent teams really, really good. So that would be your advice for for guys that are any any just do the fundamentals really, really, really well, and just do it over and over again. Yeah, and then the other thing that that's so beautiful about baseball is, and I say this all the time, is baseball is a game that's totally designed for failure. It is set up for you to not succeed. It's like I can do everything right as a hitter and get a bad result. I can do everything right as a pitcher, and if the umpire doesn't like the pitch I just threw, he, even though it's got six inches of the plate, he can call it a ball. Right. You know, the ball can be hit. I can make a perfect pitch, and the guy bleeds one down the right field line. He's got a stand-up double. So there's so many things that are out of my control. Uh, the things that I can control are, are my thoughts, my feelings, and my actions. Um, so it's really incumbent upon us as players who want to be successful in this game to really focus on the things that we can control mm. and to have a very short memory uh, on the things that we can control. And that's a challenge in itself. Yeah. It's baseball is definitely a unique sport in that way. And all sports can have like that sort of baseball esque moment in them, whether like they can't control what the ref calls, they can't control. Uh, I'm not sure what the equivalent would be in other sports, but especially in baseball, you said it's a, it's a game of failure, and it's how you respond. It's how you kind of go with it because you can do everything right and then obviously get the wrong result. And you were just talking earlier again. We'll get back to the, the meetings. It's the process over the result. I know the term the process is used a lot. But what does the process mean for you in terms of getting the right results that you want? Well, there's lots of ways to, to measure success. And if I totally attach myself to the end result, if my, if my goal – every year is to be a world champion mm -hmm. for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, and I do that for 20 years in a row. There's a good chance if I'm attached to that result, I'm going to be very disappointed Yeah. considering we haven't won a world championship. But when I write out a game plan for that result and I commit to the process and the daily action steps that it takes to become a world champion, I get to ask myself at the, again, at the end of the game, did I win or did I not win? And if I want to maintain my sanity, I have to commit myself to the process in order to win. So that's what I do. And people may not agree with that, but um, I think that's a healthy perspective. I think it was super insightful what you said in the meeting again. Can you share the, the five steps that you shared with us about what it is to get to the end goal, starting from the end goal and working backwards? Can sure. you share those five steps? Sure. We can do this with it. Any, with anything. anything, yeah, right. You, know, you right. want to gain 20 pounds, lose 20 pounds, get a better grade point average, have better relationships with my teammates, uh, make more money, get a new career. You can put out any goal you want, but we have to have a specific game plan if we're going to 
attain anything. I mean, we're not handing out winning lottery tickets here. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you look what I do in a s- simple leadership capacity with St. Jude, I've developed a, a program that I've used for over 25 years. Um, and I take this exercise right out of Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill that was written 100 years ago. And he identifies the five key steps to being successful in anything. And number one is to decide what you want and stated it in the present tense as if it's already happening. So we begin with the end in mind. That's number one. Number two is we got to set the date. One day, someday never comes. Hmm. Hoping, wishing, and wanting doesn't come. So we have to state it in the present present tense, and there needs to be a finish line so that there's something on the line here. Number three, I need to decide what, what is it I'm going to give up. So there needs to be sacrifice in anything we wish to attain. So... Uh, there's no such thing as something for nothing. So a lot of people, when I say, well, what are you willing to give up? And they say, well, I don't know. And I just say, well, how about we start with negative thinking or negative self-talk or doubt or fear, you know, the things that we say about themselves, ourselves on a daily basis. The cartoon bubble above my head is always saying negative things about myself. Right. So why don't we start there? Or maybe I need to give up being selfish. Or maybe I need to give up fast food. Or maybe I need to give up late-night eating. Or maybe I need to give up late night drinking. You know, there's a there's a lot of smoking or, you know, recreational drugs, whatever. Yeah. Maybe there's something I need to give up if I want to achieve this goal. And then number four is I need to have a specific plan of action. These are daily action steps that I'm going to take that are co- going to propel me to achieve my goal, whatever that may be. Uh, that could be, you know, if I'm going to lose weight, I maybe want to eat less, move more drink more water, stay properly hydrated, get on an exercise program, do positive daily action steps that are going to propel me in the direction of my goal. Right. And then number five is I have to get excited. I have to get become passionate about what it is I'm moving towards, uh, in enthusiasm. In other words, you know, putting fuel in the gas tank is only right. going to make the gas tank go. So those fi- five daily action steps can be applied to anything that we talked about. And I wrote it up this year that for the Cincinnati Reds to be world champions on or before November 5th, 2025. So I'm very clear on what that looks like. Right. You're not you're not leaving up for chance. You're putting it down, you're putting a date on it or before that even. And you're saying this is the way I'm going to get there. And I remember there was an interview I was watching uh, being a Red Sox fan. Mookie Betts was was huge. They had did like a locker room interview with him. And he said, I don't think people set goals enough. Like set goals for yourself. Like set something that like gets you up in the morning. Really, really, really want to do, and to hear that from you today, as all the accolades that you have is like this is a very like it's a very logical step by step thing that if you just do it, and obviously you have to do it. Like you can have it all down. If you don't put the work to it, that's another thing. But kind of laying it out there for you is kind of like the first step to actually actually doing it, not leading up for chance. And the big thing you just said, like giving up something, like giving up negative thinking, with all the accolades you had. How are you so always so confident in yourself? And I'm imagining there's times that you weren't always so confident in yourself. How are you able to let go of any negative thinking? That comes with practice, mm. Jonathan. That comes with experience. Learning how to fail and then learning how to get over things quickly is, is an acquired taste. It's <laughs> something that has to be learned over time. And I think as we go through our playing career, whether it's soccer or field hockey or baseball or football, it's like when when we get beat up enough, we begin to realize that, you know, beating myself up mentally like this is serving no useful purpose. Right. So I just think over time, 
you learn that if, if you're going to be successful at something, we need to take these uh, failures, we need to take these not-so-good experiences and learn from them and have them become learning experiences from for us and then let them go yeah. and then take the lesson and apply it to what's next. So we were talking to a young man today. Right. Yeah. Why, why don't you set it up? How that... Well, no, we were, we were talking with uh, one of my teammates today, and uh, he's a very good player. And he came from a different school. I uh, transferred in, and he, in his, his mind's eye, he had two not so great years in his his mind, and he felt like that he's putting a lot of pressure, time constraint wise, to have good years here because of where he wants to go. And then I'll let you take it away and what what you said afterwards. Yeah, and the the young man was really beating himself up for the poor experience that he had at his previous college and really um, apologizing for how things went and, man, I wish it wasn't like that and I screwed up and I messed up. And I asked him a bunch of things like, you know, what did you learn? And he rattled off a bunch of things that he learned. He learned about patience. He learned about uh, focus. He learned about perseverance. He learned about working harder and working smarter. He rattled off seven or eight things that he learned from these not-so-good experiences. And I just asked him, I said, so everything you learn, why is that a bad experience? Yeah, yeah. And he realizes that it's not. It's just his interpretation of experience that needed an adjustment. That. So, you know, we can look at anything. I can say 70 degrees and sun, sunny and if we have 100 people, maybe a third of the room is going to say it's too hot. Yeah. A third of the people are going to say it's too cold. <laughs> and then a third of the people are going to say it's just right. So it's just you know right. a matter of perspective and how we choose to look at things. Yeah, that may have been his uh, his Joe Arnold moment per se, or I'll have to ask him about that a little later. And I know if you don't mind sharing the story, I think people would really appreciate it if if you're open to yeah. about the, the impact that Joe Arnold, your coach, when you were at the Cape, you uh, got the opportunity to play in the Cape League. Your it was your sophomore year, yeah, a sophomore summer, and you were not starting out too great and frustrated yourself. And I'll I'll let you take away what who Joe Arnold was and what yeah. that conversation was all about. So after my sophomore year here, I had had a, a very good year, and I got invited to play for Wareham in the Cape Cod League, which is the best summer league in the United States. And I was very anxious going up there because I knew I was playing against national players from all over the United States who were right. coming from powerhouse Division One programs, and my anxiety level was pretty high. And I went up there and was really struggling the first two weeks, and my coach, Joe Arnold, from Florida Southern, who had won – numerous national championships at the Division II level. It really hadn't said anything to me over two weeks, and I, I thought he was not liking me so much or furious mm -hmm. with me for my poor performance, and I realized he was just quiet and watching. Mm. And after two weeks, he came up to me and he said, uh, hey, John, I, I got something that'll help you with your hitting. I got two things. And I said, great, what are they? And he said, number one, uh, you're boring out your arm. Your hands are getting too far away from your body. And he walked away. And I caught him as he was walking away. And I said, Joe, Joe, what else do you got? You know, and he said two things. And he came back and he started pointing his finger in my chest. And, and he said to me sincerely, he said, John, I got to tell you, you are the best player in this league. I suggest you start acting like it. And I said, what do you mean by that? He, he said, the pitcher's not eight feet tall. 
They don't all throw 100 miles an hour. You're giving the pitcher way too much credit. So just get a good pitch to hit and send it into next week. I'm like, okay. So that night I got three hits. I don't know if I hit them hard, but I got three hits. And then that night I hit for the cycle. Then I had a 20-game hitting streak. And six weeks later I was the MVP of the league. And then I carried that into my junior year coming back here. And uh, nine months later, I was a first-round draft pick and first-team All-American and 10th player picked in the country. And I don't think any of that happens without that conversation with Joe Arnold. And I don't say that to impress people, but to impress upon people that it's really cool if you can have that moment in your life when you can have somebody see more in you than you can see in yourself. So I think it's really cool for people to be able to have a Joe Arnold moment in their life and then uh, to have a Joe Arnold around in your life on a regular basis that you right. can go to, somebody who can hold the mirror up so that you can see yourself more clearly when things are not going well. And then the, the nicest, the third part of the Joe Arnold analogy is when you can become Joe Arnold for somebody else. And I, I feel like I get to do that uh, in my St. Jude Leadership Society program. Uh, I've taken the lessons that I've learned over a 40-year career in baseball and applied them in a very practical way. I think everyone appreciated what you said using that Joe Arnold example, and I, you gave some homework to one of our teammates saying, find that, that Joe Arnold in your life, and maybe to our listeners, find that Joe Arnold over this break, that yeah. you can really really be a good mentor to you. And uh, if you want to add anything more, but I was going to transition over. I would love to hear more about your St. Jude's work, uh, if you don't want to add anything <clears throat> else more. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, my wife has been on an advisory council for St. Jude's Children's Research for over 30 years. She was connected uh, with American Cancer Society prior to that. And when we got married 17 years ago, I saw what she was doing in terms of raising millions of dollars for the hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, and helping kids with cancer. And it, like, I started looking at her like, I got to get involved with this somehow, but I got to find my niche. Right. And over the last few years, I've had this leadership program that I developed 30 years ago that I've constantly been tweaking, that I've been working with high school athletes and college athletes and helping them, you know, become better hitters and better fielders and better students. And I've, I've taken the template that I've used and I've approached people in the St. Jude um, fundraising wing called ALSAC. And I've been introduced to people who run leadership programs on a national level. And I was asked to take my leadership program and do a test pilot with some high school and college kids three years ago with four kids from around the United States. Hmm. We did a test pilot over a one-month period. And the results were very favorable. And they invited me to come back. So now I do four pods a year in the wintertime, in the off-season, and I'm working with some brilliant young people, high school level, college level, post-college level, who are really interested in becoming the next generation of philanthropic leaders for mm -hmm. this beautiful hospital in Memphis, Tennessee that's dedicated to curing childhood cancer. Wow, so you took people from all over the country. and did they? How do they get in touch with you? Was it an application? How well, that? They, they go through the St. Jude Leadership Society, which I any gotcha. any gotcha. student can apply to. Okay, great. You go online and just Google SJLS. You can become a member, and there are certain requirements in terms of 
protocol and, and going through specific seminars and, and there's a fundraising aspect to it. Um, and then if you meet certain criteria, you're invited to the national conference. And then once you get to the national conference, if you're interested in working with me, just come and see me. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been introduced to, in three years, over 20 kids. Mm -hmm. And I have a tremendous amount of hope for um, the future of this country. If, if these young, brilliant minds are any reflection of what's possible in this country, I have a lot of hope uh, because I'm... I'm 20 for 20 with working with these kids. And the kids that come to me, they're, they're already properly vetted. There's no whining. There's no complaining. <laughs> there's no excuse making. They're all amazing young people that want to make a difference in this country. And, you know, part of me is, is very disappointed in the, in the climate of what's happening in the United States. I'm not pointing uh, blame in any one particular direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think we need a lot more mature behavior for the next generation uh, if we're going to turn things around in, in the United States. It's really cool that this is just outside of baseball. This is more than baseball. And you're talking this servant leader path of, okay, I was a scout and I was a pro baseball player and coach. And now I'm looking at more in a broader scheme. It's like, okay, how can I be that Joe Arnold, where Joe Arnold was to me, to these 20 individuals to help them be the best servant leaders they can be. And I think he said it to us in the meeting, like you can, I think it's saying in the Bible, you can't take anything with you. Like, this is what lives on, like, your relationships you have with these 20 other individuals who are going to become really good servant leaders. 20 out of 20 is a pretty good batting average right there. So it's, it's really, really cool yeah. the work you're doing with them. And uh, I encourage anyone to check out uh, the LinkedIn page you have, all the St. Jude's yeah. work. It's really, really cool. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. It's, it's really been very humbling for me. I, I had a wrap-up group with my latest pod, my November Superstars, we wrapped things up last night, and to watch their transformation over a five-week period, is uh, it's priceless to mm. me. And I, I really didn't do anything other than ask a ton of questions and help them find their way and what they want to accomplish and then draw up a game plan for them and then to address certain needs and challenges that they're having. So, you know, I think when we get to the end of our life, uh, I don't want to get too philosophical here. Um, I'm 62 years old, and I, th I think I'm probably closer on the second half of my life. I, I think in 50 years when I've decided that I've had enough, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be sitting in my wheelchair and say, honey, can you bring me my checkbook so I can look at the balance one more time? <laughs> or can you bring me my Cape Cod MVP plaque yeah, right. so I can remind myself of how wonderful I was? Yeah. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to mm. I'm going to want to be surrounded by uh, loved ones and people that I feel like I've made a difference, uh, so that they can carry on and pass it on. Oh, Can't take it with you. Absolutely, I think you just impacted a a lot of Seton Hall baseball players today, and clearly have impacted a lot of the St. Jude's leadership program people, amongst tons of other people in in your career. So thank you for sharing a little bit of that today with us. Uh, before, in terms of time, I wanted to get back to a few other things with the conversation we had with the baseball guys, the transfers. There's a lot of transfers now that we have across all sports. What was your advice to the transfers, to newcomers coming into Seton Hall? I know the Seton Hall baseball program is very very historic, traditional, a lot of legacy there. Even in that aspect, but also in general, what was your advice to transfers with adjusting to a new college? This was the most challenging group to speak to because I think that they're, um, they're coming in for the shortest period of time. Right. They're usually coming from at least one other college environment university college d2 d1 uh and they they left somewhere that they were very disappointed so they're they're coming here 
with renewed hope. But perhaps they don't have as much opportunity in terms of time. Their window may be very short. They may have one year. They may have two years. So I encourage them when they when over the Christmas holiday to find some way to emotionally connect to the legacy of the program. I mean, this it is absolutely amazing what Seton Hall University baseball has done, considering when you look back at over the last 50 years, yeah. the, the facilities that we had, the location that we were in. I mean, Newark is right around the corner, and you know, a lot of people were, would discourage people from going there because, you know, you're, in, you're so close to Newark and you don't want to go there. You should go somewhere else. So there were all these reasons to discourage people from coming here. You guys played on a lousy field. You know, why do you want to go there? You're, the, the coach is a tyrant. Why do you want to play for him? There were all these excuses to not go to Seton Hall. And, but when you look at what's been accomplished here, the number of major league players, Hall of Fame players, Major league managers, front office executives, all Americans, minor league players who have become brilliant coaches, successful coaches in and around New Jersey, people that have become successful doctors and business people and teachers and firemen and plumbers and janitors or whatever it is they've chosen to do. There are so many amazing examples of what being a, a player here was. And it doesn't have to be just baseball. I think this is an amazing opportunity for student athletes to grow right. on and off the field. You know, the proximity to culture in New York City and the business district and finance. And um, there's just so many opportunities around that. Um, if you just come here and give yourself a chance, there's, there's a lot of amazing opportunities. Yeah, just like embrace it. Like, I mean, as you said, you said before, like you're only here once at Seton Hall. And it might be four years, it might be two years if you're a trans, but really embrace it, all the opportunities that it offers. And I know that the alumni have a lot of strong connections with one another. And in terms of baseball aspect, like the golf outing, the first pitch dinner, a lot of alumni groups, you all stay connected. So the time that you have here, you're really well meshed together because of everything you do on the field, off the field. Uh, I, was, I was lucky enough to talk to, to Pat Basillo. Um, I read an article online saying that you and him are pretty close, and he had some great quotes to say uh, about you and he said he looked up to you in so many ways. He was just, John was just a guy I could look at and emulate. He was a guy I wanted to work like and be like. And we just grew closer through playing. We developed a really good camaraderie. He's just a really genuine guy. He wants to help people. And he's fortunate to be in baseball his whole life. And he was telling some good stories throughout that I can get to a little later. Yeah. But Pat spoke so highly. You know, it was really cool to talk to him. Pat is an amazing success story. Um, he's a Seton Hall great. He's just... He was like the first player that ever came here that was like a two-way player. He really was a, a maverick in that in that sense. Like he was a, the first guy to shed light on, you know, why do I just have to be a pitcher? Why can't I be a pitcher and a hitter? And right. now we see these, these hybrids in the big leagues now, Michael Lorenzen, Otani, uh, that are playing multiple positions, pitching and, and batting. And Pat was like light years of he ahead of – Anybody he was the first guy you ever saw do both of them well, mm. and he was drafted. Uh, he was the fourth player picked in the United States. He was our right fielder. He batted fourth, and he came in. He closed the game in the ninth <laughs> inning. He was amazing, and just a super guy who has a very very intelligent man and a great teammate. And he was just a super super good guy. Uh, he, he sounded like it over the phone. And big shout out to Pat Basil for 
talking to me and all the, the words he gave with you. He gave some funny stories, man, I can talk about afterwards as well. <laughs> but uh, he said it feels just like yesterday and the camaraderie that you two had along with a lot of our other teammates, just like, just to seem like the overall feel from all alumni, just embrace this time like you only have it once. So yeah. really embrace it, not only for like, the baseball and the sport, but the other opportunities that, that are offered here at Seton Hall. Yeah, so. and getting back to the transfers, like yeah. I, I encourage them to, to do some homework on really on the, the history of the program and sure. find out who Rick Cerrone w- was or Danny Morigello or Charlie Paleo or Ed Blankmeyer and find out, wow, who, who are these guys and mm-hmm. how were they the building blocks of this program and who was Mike Shepard? I know he's the father of the current coach here, but what was he all about and how did he get the best of his players and like, what does this never lose your hustle slogan mean? Right. Yeah. What does it really mean? Like, where did it come from? Why is it so important? Why is it still here after all these decades and generations of players? So I think as a transfer student coming in here with a, a limited amount of time, to be able to emotionally connect to the program will, will give you some type of aid and help in, in getting you through this small window. Yeah, and I think to Coach Shep's point, he does a really good job of having us do the, the Pirate Pride Challenge and getting to learn about one alumni uh, per team. We get divided up into four teams, and I think it's different for for transfers because they don't they don't really understand like why like why sometimes we have to like do this, and they then they call up the alumni and they tell them all this information and all this advice like oh like, that's why we do it. Yeah, like it's a really historic program. There's a lot of tradition involved, and there's a lot of alumni that really want to help out. So it's kind of like just in terms of doing your homework and doing your research on different guys, like why is this program so great yeah. is the way it is. And that can apply to any program here or, or elsewhere that for that matter. And uh, just, I know we talked a bunch, a bunch about the kind of the different things that we talked about in the meeting you just had, seniors and grads, if you want to just quickly sum up any of the points that you had for, for the leaders on the teams or the seniors and grad students. Yeah. Just, you know, with the leaders and the seniors and the graduates, I just encourage them to, to be an example for others to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, Put yourself in the shoes you were in as a freshman and who did you look up to and what were the qualities about the juniors and seniors that you admired that, and maybe you adopted some of those. And you want to pass that on and you want to feel like you, you made your teammates you know, better baseball players and also better students and mm-hmm. better ambassadors and uh, human beings. So it's... it's I, I like to call that psychic income, and that's yeah. the benefit that you get with helping other people, and that's what leaders get. It doesn't come in the form of financial compensation. It's more emotional. Mm. So, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Well, thank you again for doing those those four meetings. Um, I was doing some research, and I saw some cool videos you do impersonations. It's a little different topic of Willie McGee and Kurt Gibson. I have the videos up here. Um, were you, was that kind of like your personality when you were playing? You uh, kind of... A really good team. Like, I obviously know how good of a teammate you are, but being being able to bring people together through impersonations of different guys, hitting stances and whatnot. Well, it was something I did a lot <laughs> when I was a little kid. I used to imitate pitchers: Tom Seaver, Tommy John, you know, Bob Gibson, John Matlack, Jerry Kuzman with the Mets. I, I don't know. I just liked imitating other baseball players, and I just sensed that when I was doing it in the big leagues with the St. Louis Cardinals. I, uh, when I did it for Willie McGee, like Willie was very serious and Willie uh, didn't smile easily. And when I started doing it with Willie, he got such a kick out of it. And he um, he liked it. And 
if I was able to help Willie McGee, who I love and adore, he's my favorite teammate of all time, uh, if I was able to help him in that capacity, um, then I felt like I was being a good teammate. And Whitey Herzog, who was our manager, saw what I was able to do in terms of helping him just relax uh, a little bit mentally or not take himself so seriously that uh, I was helping him in, in some way. And as far as Kirk Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pulling up the videos here for all that the listeners. All came about, uh, <laughs> after his historic home run in, right. against the Oakland A's in, in game one oh, that's awesome. of the World Series. So um, I had to, in doing all these imitations, <laughs> if I'm going to do it, I might as well do it right. So I got uniforms and. Oh, it was and awesome. It was so cool seeing helps. that. It was really cool. So no, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, but what you just said is it was a really cool point. You talked about in the meet. I keep referencing the meetings, but it was, I think, really important for us and for all the teams. You said that there was like just four different types of people, and there was a letter to represent each one. There was like con- control for C. It was an A for analyze. Uh, let's see how good my memory is here. It was a P, P for promoter, and it was an S, was it, for supporter? supporter. That's what it was. And you just said that point there, like, Will McGee was very serious, but you were able to get through him in a unique way that made him smile and kind of get through him yeah. as a teammate. And the manager really appreciated that. So, like, that's probably like the good quality of a leader, able to reach out to multiple different people in multiple different ways. And uh, I think for any other leader out there as a top of run right now, to be able to reach out to different people and reach get through to them in different ways is, is super important. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I think, you know, a long time ago the – method of teaching or coaching was you know the standard slogan was you know it's my way or the highway there's one set of rules and you're going to do it my way or you're not going to be part of my program and that worked but things have changed quite a bit society has changed and i think there's a a more effective way to connect with people yeah and it takes a little bit of work and and understanding where people are coming from we there's a lot of different types of people and and having an understanding of their background and their personality and how they're wired and how they do they have a sense of humor and are, are they too analytical are they too controlling do they like to have fun yep. or do they want to blend in the background I right. think as a leader and as a coach it's really incumbent upon us to understand where people are coming from so mm-hmm. if we're going to connect with them <laughs> and get the best out of them it's nice to know if you know how can this guy handle a pat on the back or a kick in the behind yeah. you know some guys need one some guys need the other some guys need both at the same time sometimes uh so i just think coaches overall we need to do a better job of of understanding where players are coming from and and being willing to make adjustments to get the best out of them thank you for bringing that point up i think that's a a really good one and just in sake of time we'll go right into like the last few rapid fire walk the plane questions i know um who was the best teammate you played with in the big league? Just real rapid-fire questions. Willie McGee. Willie McGee. Team. Represents right. everything that's right in baseball. Awesome. Love it. Uh, best piece of advice your parents gave you during your college career? Uh, play hard, play smart, and and be a good teammate. That was my mom all the way. She was she was great. Love it. Go-to snack on the way to games? Oh, famous Amos chocolate chip cookies. Oh, okay. Yeah, chocolate chip cookies. They always <laughs> work. When you played, how would you best describe your play style? Last one. Uh, gritty, gritty. Uh, passion and perseverance for long periods of time. We'll play shout, hard and play smart. We'll shout out to Angelia Duckworth, right? Is that yep. her name? Yeah, yeah awesome. beautiful, beautiful TED Talk. Yeah, and uh, that's going to really do it here. I know we kind of went over time, so thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You're first alumni, so you're the OG here right. in the studio. We'll, we'll mark that down. And I'll thank you so much for coming here and speaking with the baseball team. 
thank you for taking four or five minutes to talk to all the listeners out there, all the Seton Hall student athletes, coaches, and staff to inform of your story, your experience, and all the advice you have to offer. So really appreciate your time. So thank you. Well, good luck to everybody out there in pirate land. Go Pirates. I'm rooting for all of you on and off the field, on the field, in the classroom. Keep going. You're doing great. Awesome. So that'll do it from us, Jonathan Luters, John Morris. We've got Brian Henderson back there behind the glass. Thank you for your work today, and uh, we'll see you next time.